But it's, it's one of the most meaningless expressions I've ever heard, always was, always will be. Okay, say it. Okay, what next? So what? It's like hearing that term sovereignty never ceded. Like, what the hell does that mean? Once someone's declared this, that their sovereignty was never ceded, you've said it, okay, what action do we do now as a result of hearing that great insight? Where, what do we do with it? Where do we go? I don't know. I, I don't think it leads us anywhere. If they want to say it, that's fine, but they are relaying the message that we are somehow victims. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the incredibly Caucasian Ricky Alpine. <laughs> that is true. I am Caucasian. Well, I just, I just call it like I see it. <laughs> but, you know, in, in, in the future, when transracialism is a thing, I can be whoever I want to be. That is, a, that is so true. I'm here for your journey. So <laughs> let's go on. Thank but, you. But until that day, uh, well, I'm not going to talk to you about race matters. Instead, we've got Anthony Dillon with us here today, who's going to talk us through Oh, some heady topics, Indigenous affairs. Fantastic. I can't wait. All righty. Anthony Dillon is an academic, researcher, commentator and journalist who identifies as both Aboriginal and Australian. He is a postdoctoral fellow in the Indigenous Thriving Program at the Australian Catholic University in Sydney. He's a bold voice in the Indigenous affairs space and his work seeks to challenge popular narratives about race in Australia. He published a paper for the Centre for Independent Studies entitled Indigenous Suicide, Finding a Catalyst for Action. And he's also written for The Australian, The Spectator, The Epoch Times and The Age. Anthony, welcome to The New Flesh. All right, thank you. So, Anthony, before we dive into domestic matters, I thought we'd just check in with some, you know, related issues from the US. Patrice Cullors, co-founder of BLM, has said that the publishing of the details of her $6 million mansion is racism. Uh, is it now only fair to say that millionaire lives matter? <laughs> I hadn't heard that, actually, but that's that's quite interesting. Um, <laughs> that's a good response. Only millionaires matter. <laughs> well, now, but seriously, it's unfortunate that we can't just dive in without uh, addressing your background, because at the end of the day, it's you as an individual that we're here to, to interview. However, talk of, of race in Australia is such that we have to address uh, how you identify culturally. Um, uh, you say you're an Australian and Indigenous, is that correct? Yeah, look, I prefer to say part Indigenous, part Aboriginal, um, just meaning that part of my ancestry is Aboriginal and part is you know, other stuff, dominantly English. Is that controversial to say part? Surprisingly, it is, but I can't work out why it is. Um, and in fact, 25 years ago, it was very common to hear the term part Aboriginal and nobody cared. Uh, but then almost overnight, it was one of those politically correct things where you don't say it. People have this ridiculous rule which they've made up where they say, you're either Aboriginal or you're not. Well, I have Aboriginal ancestry, I have non-Aboriginal ancestry. So I don't see that it's controversial. Mm. Would you mind telling us a bit more about your Aboriginal heritage? Like like which people are your people? Yeah. Um, through my father. Gold Coast, Kumbameri people. My grandfather, he moved his family up to the Sunshine Coast, so I have more of a connection with the Sunshine Coast than the Gold Coast, but, you know, pretty much southeast Queensland. And it was a the Aboriginal family were a great family, just like mum's family. Perhaps let's get this out of the way. Is Australia a racist country or exceptionally racist compared with other countries in your view? And, and how do you define racism? No, it's not a racist country, and I'll qualify that. I'm not saying there is no racism. I'm just saying we're not a racist country. You know, I'm also saying Australian beaches are not shark infested, even though we have some shark attacks each year. It's pretty safe to go to the 
the Australian beaches. Now, when you look at how many people go each year, look at the very small number of shark attacks, it would be silly to say Australian waters are shark infested. Just like racism, it would be silly to classify Australia as a racist country because of uh, there are some instances of racism. To use another analogy, I know some Indigenous people who have a good income. I'm one of them. Um, we're not struggling. We have food on the table. We can afford luxuries. And there's, there's many of us like that. It would be therefore wrong to say, oh, therefore Australia, uh, Australian Aboriginal people are a rich people. Some of us have a good income. Um, so there's a mistake when you find some examples and then try and stereotype the whole group or population. So no, Australia is not a racist country. There are some examples of racism. Uh, there are many examples of fake racism, racism too, like Coon Cheese or Australia Day, that sort of thing, or, you know, gollywogs. None of that is racism, yet uh, people like to shout racism. When there's an inequality, uh, a health inequality uh, between races, people use that as evidence as that must be racism when there's other factors that can explain inequalities. So uh, how are we defining racism here, Anthony? Because I feel this term has been uh, morphing over the last little while. It's certainly been stretched. Um, You you can Google definitions, and I I agree with the standard ones, where a person is treated unfairly on the basis of their race. That does include, you know, at one level, extreme uh, difference in physical treatment, you know, um, not a, not employing someone on the basis of their race, refusing them service, uh, physically assaulting them. Uh, and then, you know, at the other end, you jokes and uh, verbal assaults and that sort of thing. Okay. Now you've left out the words, uh, uh power and privilege, which I think come up a lot. Uh, it was, this, is this purposeful? I mean, I'm told that these things are, uh, uh, that's probably more important and that it only goes one way. Like, so that the idea is that a person of color uh, cannot be racist. It's just automatically assumed that if someone is a member of a majority group, um, say non-Aboriginal, that they have power over those in the minority minority group, um, such as Aboriginal. Now, you don't seem to have any power over me. Um, you don't seem to have any privilege I don't have access to. And it's interesting, we know that even within a group, such as Aboriginal people, there are some members who can exert power over other members of that group. So what do you call that? Is that a, I don't know, an intra-racism or something like that? (laughs) I've coined a new term, (laughs) intra-racism. That's good. Well, we've had just about every other Mm. racism, structural racism, casual Racism, yeah. institutional racism. It's, a, it's another PhD thesis waiting right there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, to do a PhD like that, it wouldn't be hard to find people where you can just kind of prime them into thinking that they have been victims of this intra-racism. You know, you, you ask the right questions and you'll get the right answers. Mm, for sure. So we'll move on to uh, i mentioned this this outfit uh, at the beginning what is your assessment of blm or black lives matter that that's the movement and the organization what what do you make of their main claims oh i refute them um i refute what they stand for and simply because it would seem that only some black lives matter okay 
Like here in Australia, if you, if an Aboriginal person is killed by another Aboriginal person, we don't hear much about that. It might feature uh, on page three, but then that's the end of it. Okay, so those black lives don't matter. And a friend of mine who lives in Central Australia, he was telling me uh, when you have you know, a black killing a black, unless you're related to the family, you won't hear about it. But we know if the white man can be implicated in any way, and there's a black death, well, then all of a sudden those lives, those black lives matter. Mm. Well, BLM is an American import. And don't we have completely different concerns uh, and conditions here in Australia? Like, this is not something the media spent much time on. It's as though we've just downloaded BLM onto our computer, so to speak. You know, shouldn't we have our own purpose-built group of Marxist radicals? We are an Americanized country, I believe. And even within the Indigenous space, we're using the term First Nations, uh, which is a term I don't oppose, but nor am I a fan of it. Um, that sounds very American to me. But, yeah, you know, just they probably think there's safety in numbers. Let's, let's latch onto this BLM. Uh, there's a big movement and we, we become part of that or a chapter of it. So, so the, the Black Lives Matter, the slogan is undeniable, obviously. Of course they matter. But is it possible that in the pursuit of noble goals that, that this group has either simplified or overstated some of the problems they rest their sort of revolutionary movement on? Uh, do the ends justify the means? Like I said, um, they're very biased in the sense that it's only some black lives that matter. Those lives where you can implicate uh, a white perpetrator. And, you know, certainly there have been cases where um, a white person has done the wrong thing and killed a black person in cold blood. And everyone would say that's horrible and that should be dealt with. The problem is, though, the whole BLM has created sort of like a lens for viewing uh, racial tensions so that whenever you have a, a black person who dies at the hands of a white person, it's just automatically assumed that it was racially motivated. Um, and, you know, look at the, uh, George Floyd, for example, you know, what the cop it was wrong, though, you know, he certainly contributed to the death, but it was just automatically assumed it was a, an act of racism. Um, we don't know that. And so every time you, you have a, a white on black killing or crime, it's assumed to be racism. And that's not necessarily the case. So the group, but the group in Australia has, has latched on to deaths in custody, right? And is there a dis disparity between uh, sort of the some of the claims they've made or the way they've gone about uh, protesting and the actual statistics in this way? Sure. And, uh, well, deaths, deaths in custody, you know, the, the deaths in custody movement, if you want to call it, started long before BLM was on the scene. Um, so it was just a, a convenient marriage, if you like. And, yes, there has been uh, many mistruths and lies. You know, the, the bottom line is an Aboriginal person in custody here in Australia, is less likely to die than a non-Aboriginal person in custody, which you would think would be good news, or for Aboriginal people at least anyway, but it seems to anger a few people. They deny that uh, because it doesn't fit the, um, the victim narrative. And so what they then latch onto, and I guess rightly so, is the high incarceration rates. Yes, Aboriginal people are 
uh, brought into custody at a higher rate than non-Aboriginal people custody, and that is a problem that needs to be dealt with. But it shouldn't be conflated with deaths in custody. It was a um, it paints an inaccurate picture of what's happening. So again, just something an Aboriginal person in custody is less likely to die than a non-Aboriginal person in custody, but an Aboriginal person is more likely to end up in custody for a whole host of reasons. You know, a similar analogy. I'm I'm more likely to die in New South Wales than I am in my home state of Queensland, simply because I spend 99% of my time in New South Wales. So, you know, when I spend more time here, when I die, I'm more likely to be here. Uh, and, you know, so the fact that you've got many more Aboriginal people in custody means you're going to see higher numbers of deaths, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And so then following that through, is that uh, should we then be looking at uh, the, the causes and conditions of why there are more Indigenous people in, in custody, perhaps? Yep, absolutely. So it, we have a problem with over-incarceration, and the way we do that is preventing people from coming into uh, contact with the you know, criminal justice system in the first place. And, you know, that's, there's multiple reasons why um, they are more likely to come into contact. Uh, racism is not a driver of these things. Um, there are other factors, you know, um, poor role models, poverty. But, but as soon as you start talking about, say, role models or or the, the, the role of, of the nuclear family in trying to lift uh you know indigenous people out of poverty you you automatically come up against a claim of racism you know that 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 sort of thinking you know is 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 racist so how do you combat that yeah no well, it's not race racism because you know before the white man arrived uh, kids got to see parents engaging in meaningful activities um and even certainly after the white men came and disrupted everything um, you, yeah, again, you, you had still had strong families where parents set the example, the rules and roles were well defined, and certainly that's how it was in, in my Aboriginal family as well. Um, and yes, there were certainly some exceptions. Generally speaking, we had good role models to look at. Um, we saw adults working, and we saw adults behaving responsibly. And there was also this thing called discipline, where you did the wrong thing, you were uh, told about it, and there was usually a consequence follow. So order and structure has always been in the, uh, the Aboriginal population, and so to insist on bringing it back to those places where it's currently not happening is not racist at all. Mm, well, maybe that brings us nicely onto my next question. And you've written that it's a problem when we insist that anyone who identifies as Aboriginal must therefore be seen as being vastly or even moderately different from their their non-Aboriginal neighbour. There's this idea amongst a certain elite class in Australia that, that the Aboriginal way of thinking and living is somehow very different to the way non-Indigenous Australians live their lives. And this idea, I, I believe, it enforces a view that non-Indigenous Australians can't have an opinion on Indigenous issues because we can never fully understand Aboriginal people. How do you think this othering is affecting the discourse around Indigenous issues and, and, and how do we stop it from happening? Well, it's definitely affecting the discourse and I think it's impacting negatively on Aboriginal people when they're continually told that only Aboriginal people can understand Aboriginal people. And that is just complete nonsense. 
know, certainly you may have times when interpreters are needed or, you know, that minority of Indigenous people who uh, either English, they don't speak English or they're not proficient at English. But when you, you know, get beyond language and as, as one of my favourite philosopher, uh, Anthony DeMello says, when you scrape away the exterior of culture, we're all the same. It's just, you just got this thin um, surface of culture. We're all the same. So the, the commonalities far outweigh the differences. And, you know, we, we have the same fundamental needs as humans, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, you know, we have the same physical needs, that's obvious. But also the same psychological needs. We need to connect with other people. We need to have purpose in our lives. We need to engage in meaningful activities. We need to be challenged. Uh, we need to be supported. We have all those needs in, in common. You see some people claim to be culturally different, and very often that culture is just a you know, facade. I call it they put on the cloak of culture, whereas my friend Best Press, Best Price in, in uh, Alice Springs says, you know, it's Disneyland culture. Um, and, you know, I, I have nothing against um, demonstrations of Aboriginal culture in festivities and that sort of thing, but when it comes to leading... Yeah, your normal life, the differences, if they exist, are generally pretty minimal. Subsections of the Indigenous community that are affected by different problems, and I don't see that as a, a race thing. You know, it's due to other factors, location and that sort of thing. So, you know, if we have a look at fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, for example, yes, it's affecting Aboriginal people more than non-Aboriginal people, but I don't see it as an Aboriginal problem, I just see it as a people problem, right? because we know that, you know, the way you pre prevent fetal alcohol spectrum disorder for Aboriginal people is the same way you'd prevent it for non-Aboriginal people as well. Well, it's it's such an interesting point, this idea of culture, and and because some people on on perhaps, we'll just say it, the, the left side of politics at the moment, uh, and maybe, the, maybe the, the, the far right as well, would say, you know, because it sounds like it, 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 it's a double standard because how come you could say that an Indigenous person, like it's a sort of like essentialism. You're saying that they're cult, they are their culture like to their very bones, but then that same, this uh, a left-wing activist might also, on the other hand, be advocating that, I don't know, having an Australian identity or culture is 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 not even a real thing or something we should be doing or that, that, that there is even uh, a nationalist sort of or patriotism that you should that you should have you know what i mean so it doesn't seem to fit that you i feel like there are some people out there who would hold those two contradictory ideas in their head at the same time they'd be saying like oh um australian patriotism well, uh, or australian culture there is no such thing as australian culture we're just you know or whatever but then on the other hand oh oh uh, indigenous person uh they are 100 through to their very bones uh a, a a truly you know a cultural artifact human cultural artifact yeah um certainly we are allowed to and do indeed have a, a national culture if you want which is uh, very broad and heterogeneous but even so you know i believe there's a common thread running through people who uh, embrace that whether they be aboriginal non-aboriginal uh recent arrival or whatever and i think this you know, the thread that runs through it is we call Australia home. We we call this our home, whether we've been here for one year or other the descendants of several generations. Now, within, under that umbrella, 
Yes, you can have subsections uh, where there's some variation, but you still have that common thread theme linking them. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we've got more in common uh, than, than we don't. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm all for respecting differences where they exist, only after first understanding and acknowledging commonalities. Mm. Uh, differences are, are fine, um, you know, whether they be gender differences or whatever. Controversial. Sorry? <laughs> Controversial. Uh, well, um, whatever example I'm thinking of, so long as we think that, you know, beneath it, there's a strong connection mm. between us all. Yeah. Well, Anthony, I, I live in Melbourne, fairly inner city, and I often see white people wearing Indigenous-themed T-shirts with the slogan, always was, always will be. That they're, they're everywhere. That slogan seems very close-ended to me. It suggests that the narrative of invasion and genocide will never change and that Australia will always be a blood-stained, stolen land until the day it somehow returned to its rightful owners. What's your take on this slogan, and is there an alternative that all Australians could, could get behind? Well, first of all, when you say you see a white person wearing those shirts, some of those white people identify as Aboriginal, and I, I suspect for some of them, Wearing that shirt with that slogan is a way of helping them to feel like they're Aboriginal when, you know, clearly they don't look Aboriginal. And I realised just as I said that term, look Aboriginal people, I'm going to have critics saying, you know, well, you know, you have this stereotyped idea, blah, 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 which is just nonsense. Um, but that is, it's one of the most meaningless expressions I've ever heard, always was, always will be. Okay, say it. Okay, what next? So what? It's like hearing that term, sovereignty never ceded. What the hell does that mean? Once someone's declared this, that their sovereignty was never ceded, not that I can understand what it means, but you've said it, okay, what action do we do now as a result of hearing that great insight? Where, what do we do with it? Where do we go? I don't know. I, I don't think it leads us anywhere. If they want to say it, that's fine, but they are, I think what you alluded to, they are, you know, relaying the message that we are somehow victims um, because, you know, the land was taken from us. Um, and then, of course, when they say that, then there's the, the opportunity for them to step in with, well, you know, un under my culture, within my culture, I'm so well connected with the land, blah, blah, blah. And I always think, well, for me, my connection with the land is spiritual. And if it's spiritual, it can never, ever be taken from me because spiritual is something that cannot be taken from a person. So, again, it's just an attempt to try and make white people feel guilty, you know, your land was stolen. Um, like, like the other slogans, no pride in genocide, um, that sort of thing. It's an attempt to try and feel special. It's an attempt to try and feel holy and make some other people, that is the white people, feel guilty. You can flash that slogan around. You can flash that slogan around as much as you want, and it's not going to put more food on the table. It's not going to make safe, clean living environments Indigenous people, it's not going to get more kids into school and it's not going to get adults into jobs. So it's virtue signaling. Mm, yes, I agree. Uh, the slogans are so overly emotional. Uh, you know, what's, what's the truth behind that emotion? What experience or data are these people drawing from? I guess they would say that, you know, it's a, their own knowledge and their own data, which you white men can't understand. Um, they'd probably dismiss it or explain it away like that. Well, there's there's this tendency nowadays to to not look at at at, at numbers and and data and to talk more about people's personal truth, you know, people's 
you know, it, which is basically just anecdotal. You know, we, we seem to live in an anecdotal world now. We, we can't seem to look at the data. Um, do you think that that's, that's got something behind these emotional slogans? Sure. Um, now, first of all, I, I certainly agree that um, number, numbers or, or quantitative methods, if you like, have limitations. So there is a need to use something else. And that comes comes under the umbrella umbrella of qualitative methods. But yes, numbers are good. They do have their limitations. Qualitative methods are good, but they also have their limitations. And it does um, create room for a bit of bias to creep in. And I just think some of the narratives emerging should be challenged. You know, it, we need more than just someone saying, "Well, this is what I feel in my heart. This is what I know to be true in my heart." Um, listen to them, but also be prepared to challenge them. So, you know, the, one of the big ones these days, which has been around for a while, is my lived experience. In Aboriginal circles, when someone says, my lived experience, it's as if all conversation stops. And, you know, coming from a psychology perspective, our experiences are interpreted. You know, there's subjective interpretation. So two people can have the same experience. Well, it, you know, even something more simple, two people can see a sculpture in a museum and one can say it was work of art, it was beautiful. The other could say it was absolutely disgusting and pornographic. You know, so each has a different lived experience of the same inanimate object. Look, it seems that the, our media in, and institutions seem to be obsessed with symbols. You know, the apology from, from uh, 2007, Australia Day, this in endless debate about Australia Day. Rep- we're talking about representation in drama. You've said that uh, these symbols, including the apology, uh, have little effect on the lives of uh, Indigenous Australians, particularly those in remote areas. So how do we shift the focus back to the material, real-world changes we need and away from this high emotion and, and, and yeah. symbols? Okay, so first of all, uh, some symbolism, some of it I don't, you know, I may not be a fan of it, but I don't, it so i'm not saying it, it can't happen but it often needs some action some other something ha- happen happening concurrently with it and one of the problems with it though which is a concern for me is i think sometimes focus or a pursuit something symbolic can be drawing attention away from something we can do here and now something practical we could do here and now you know whether it be changing the australian flag or having a treaty or the voice to parliament or changing the date of Australia Day. None of those things I support. I, and I haven't written them off completely, but I, don't, I just haven't seen any reasoned argument that they would be successful. So my, some, I sometimes think, okay, let's do it. If it doesn't work, can we then say we tried it, didn't work. Now can we get on with doing what we know does work, which is basically education, employment, safe environments. And when you look at those Indigenous people who are doing well, and often uh, typically those who are pushing for the symbolic type things are themselves doing very, very well. They've benefited benefited from education and employment. And I think, well, you know, know, without naming individuals, because there's there's too many of them, but I I would like to say to them, you're doing quite well without a treaty. Flag's the same. We still celebrate Australia Day. You're doing really well. Why is that? Why can't other Aboriginal people have what you have? 
In, in part of our research, we saw this on display. It was a, an interview from a few years back on, 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 on uh, Carvelis's old program. Uh, and you were, it was you uh, opposite uh, an, uh, another Indigenous um, uh, activist. And I just feel like the people on the other side of this debate get all the media attention and are wheeled out at every opportunity and, uh, to, the, and to the extent that I can predict everything that they're going to say. So the person who was opposite, who had the opposing views to some of the stuff you're saying, I knew everything she was going to say. I, I, in fact, I could have written the script for her and handed it to her and said, here, this is what you're going to say. Now, I'm fascinated by this, this bullheadedness uh, because, as you say, this strategy doesn't, isn't working in real terms. So why are some of the more committed activists not asked to defend their claims more? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Now, just a couple of things, and I'll, I'll come back to the last point you made there. If I get it, just remind me. That actress, um, she's a lovely lady, and I, every time I see her, I give her a hug, uh, <clears throat> even though I, I disagreed with her, and you know I was even mocking her because I just think, oh my goodness, here we go again. But she was basically saying, we cannot move forward until the past is acknowledged. Well, first of all. I'm not opposed to acknowledging the past, but I think it has been acknowledged over and over and over again. What I am opposed to is telling people that they cannot move forward until the past has been acknowledged, because that's just a lie. That's a lie because many, many Aboriginal people have moved forward um, without some sort of brand statement, you know, written across the sky, Australia was invaded or whatever thereafter. Again, I'm not opposed to it. I'm just saying... We shouldn't use that as an excuse to say Aboriginal people cannot move forward because many of them have moved forward. Now, the very last point you made in that statement, can you just remind me of what that yeah. was? Uh, it's basically, I just want to know why some of the, the, these committed activists aren't asked to defend their claims more. Oh, I, well, again, I guess for reasons we've already touched on, first of all, if a non-Aboriginal person suggested that to them, they'd be accused of pressing them, not understanding them, um, not having their lived experience and as a non-Aboriginal person, you don't know what the solutions are, blah, 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 that sort of thing. And of course, if a Aboriginal person like myself opposes or challenges it, you know, we're criticised being sellouts and that sort of thing. So again, because of this PC culture we live in and this cancel culture, if you try and challenge these people on these matters, we know what the outcome's going to be. You're going to be criticised and silenced. And I've even been in some situations before where I just think, I'll just shut my mouth. Even someone, you know, with Aboriginal ancestry, where I should be able to tackle this head on, I just, sometimes I just think, you know, it's just not worth it. I'll just shut up. So, you know, a lot of people are fearful of speaking out because they, they don't want to be branded a racist or being, or being insensitive or whatever. What, what I don't understand is how does the left explain successful Indigenous people such as yourself and others come to mind too, you know, Warren Mundine, Jacinta Price, you know, you could pick a whole bunch of sporting personalities as well. Um, you don't seem to have suffered the intergenerational trauma that others have. Are you somehow different? Yeah, uh, good point. And you know, I think my my grandparents, my Aboriginal grandparents, they put an, they stopped the cycle there and then. There wasn't going to be any of this intergenerational trauma nonsense um, being modelled and passed on. And so how is it explained? Well, good question, because normally they don't give too much attention to it or they will, they will call it exceptionalism, perhaps, or we've, we've become, you know, the house nigger. You know, we've had to bow and, oh, you know, the Stockholm Syndrome. So we've, we've given in, given up. 
which is just nonsense. I just lead my life just like you do every day. You know, I'm, I'm not giving in to anyone at all. Um, so, it's, you know, if it is dismissed, often it's not addressed, but if it is, they dismiss it on those grounds. Um, you know, they, they, so they might even say, you know, Anthony, outwardly, you might be doing well, but you, you've sold your soul. Hmm. Nonsense. <laughs> uh, so Jonathan Haidt, is also a psychologist and he's written books uh, extensively. Uh, he's written about victimhood culture and you know, a couple of great books, uh, including Coddling of the American Mind. In one of them, he, he outlines strategies that people can use to get over their trauma. He draws from ancient wisdom, such as the Stoics, the Buddha, teachings of Christ, and even cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, all of these get you to reframe your suffering in a way that puts, uh, puts you back in the driver's seat, so to speak. Now, has your research uh, and your, your background in psychology brought you to a similar, similar conclusion that this new brand of victimology, which I would say some Indigenous people have, have bought into, uh, uh, that it needs to be treated with uh, psychologically sound solutions? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, to get psychologically sound solutions, you don't have to go to a psychologist. Okay? You can uh, go to someone who's a good role model, someone who's leading a good life. Uh, good mate who can offer a bit of tough love where necessary. Um, two things that come to mind, though. First of all, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, if you're having problems, you know, misery, being depressed, feeling oppressed, whatever, get out of that. First of all, you've, you've got to want to get out of that. If you don't want to, there's, you know, there's nothing that can really happen to help you. And second thing, we have to, I think, remove the rewards for these claims of suffering and that sort of thing. So when someone says... They're oppressed, you know, particularly if they're from a minority group and they're just saying they're oppressed. You know, when they're leading a life just like you and I, they claim to be oppressed. We shouldn't have to stop and bow. Oh, you poor person. You know, say, look, mate, you're as good as the rest of us. Get on with life. I'm not going to join your pity party. So removing the rewards. Um, the other thing that goes hand in hand with this too, I think, is if we look at the Indigenous population, there are certainly sectors of that population where there is true suffering. And we should be focusing on those who are truly suffering rather than giving our energy to those who just claim to be suffering from gollywogs or coon cheese or Australia Day. So acknowledging the suffering where it does exist and deal with that and ignore the ones who just pretend to be suffering, who claim to be suffering. You posted an image recently on Twitter with a list of five things holding Aboriginal people back, which uh, if I were to read out at a university or the ABC, um, it would act like a kind of immediate self-cancellation Harry Potter spell. But here they are. Number one, racism is everywhere. Two, only Aboriginal people can understand Aboriginal people. Three, unless non-Aboriginal Australians acknowledge the past, we cannot move forward together. Four, we are victims of colonisation. And five, violence and child abuse are not problems in our communities. Or if they are, then it's the white man's fault. Perhaps we could pick apart each of these points in detail, starting with, with racism is everywhere. We're constantly told that racism is everywhere. Why is this idea holding Aboriginal people back? And, and each of these points we've kind of touched on in a little way so far. So why is it holding people back? Well, when you're told that you're a victim of something, it zaps you of motivation to do anything. You think, well, why should I bother trying? You know, the white man's only going to beat me get in first. Um, and you then have an excuse to sort of take the path of least resistance. Well, I'll just collect welfare um, because the system's stacked against me. So it's very demotivating. Okay? It's a lie that's mm -hmm. very demotivating. Does that address the first point? 
For sure, yeah. Well, I think we've touched a bit, uh, quite a lot on the second point, which is only Aboriginal people can understand Aboriginal people. So we might skip ahead to the third one. Uh, unless non-Aboriginal Australians acknowledge the past, we cannot move forward together. Do you think the past has been acknowledged? I, like I said, over and over and over. And But, you know, even if it wasn't, so what? Um, you know, many have moved on and are doing great things. And with regard to the past, I make this statement that a, a mentor shared with me many years ago, we are never ever victims of the past, but only ever victims of our view of the past. And it would seem that many Aboriginal people have proven that to be true. And so, you know, again, I'm not saying forget the past. I'm not saying don't acknowledge it. I'm just saying don't make it a stumbling block when in fact you could make it a stepping stone to a better future. Uh, when you look at what your, your parents and grandparents have achieved, and I don't think it's a good way to honour them by playing victim. Um, you know, they've paved the way, uh, they've made, or you've made the past a stepping stone, use it wisely. I'm, I don't want you to have to think about the hearts and minds of, of other people or, or, or people uh, long dead or anything, but I'm interested to know what, uh, uh, it's a bit of a thought experiment, but what, what possible advice or wisdom would would um, an Aboriginal elder from from generations past have for someone in the current plight? Do you know what I mean? Like like like, what would their advice be? Yeah, and I've I've thought about this often because I um, I've sometimes said when I used to lecture on Indigenous psychology and that I said imagine if we went back a few generations, you know, two hundred years ago, prior, you know, prior to colonization and we gave an Aboriginal person there a crystal ball and said, this is what your great-great-grandchildren are going to be living like um, in, in the uh, 21st century. I think they'd be shocked and horrified. So they would want to give them advice. So what advice would they give them? I think it would be um, they would draw on the traditional, well, what we call traditional wisdom, but they, which would be their, their, just their common daily wisdom, that we're all connected, we're all interconnected whether Indigenous, non-Indigenous, and they would even go further to say all living life is interconnected. So remember that. It's not us and them. It's simply us. Okay, It's not Indigenous, non-Indigenous. It's just Aussies, people. So see each other as one and in interconnected. Recognise that to eat, you have to do some hard work. Um, so, you know, grapes didn't just fall down out of the sky for Aboriginal people. They had to go hunting and gathering, that sort of thing. So giving that message of... You know, there's no free lunches. You have to put in some effort. Uh, you reap what you sow. In a nutshell, I think that's that's the first thing that comes to mind anyway, those two truths. We're interconnected and you've got to work hard um, to get ahead in life. Yes. No, I, I, I agree. I think that's, um, that's, 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 that's wonderful advice. Now, we have covered the other points in, in some of the other stuff we've, we've, we've spoken of, so we'll, perhaps we'll, we'll move on. Now, I, I know for a fact that a couple of high-level creative types listen to this podcast in secret. So one of them told me of a show they're working on. There's a mix of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal writers uh, behind the scenes. So real ebony and ivory sort of setup. Uh, now I'm not putting anyone on trial here, but stay with me. So one Indigenous writer, educated private school boy, uh, uh, was poorly behaved. Uh, diva behavior, roundly unprofessional. He bullied people in the team, including another in <laughs> Indigenous girl. So he's, he's handing it out to everyone uh now basically he routinely held the production hostage uh, the implication being that he would name and shame on social media 
and let's just say he has form in this area. So it's, this was a threat that he could he could certainly back up if he wanted to. His work was also substandard, uh, less than he's capable of. So he's he's actually you know he can deliver, but he handed in substandard work uh, routinely. Uh, not one of the producers or professional executives in charge of the production pulled him up or sanctioned any of this behaviour. In fact, he was rewarded and hired again and again. Uh, so what are the, pra- I, as I said, I'm not putting anyone on trial because there's two things I'd like your advice on. What are the, because this is a little bit of a rare case, but but it does happen. What are the practical things we can do to A, confront Indigenous colleagues in a professional setting uh, without losing everything? <laughs> and, more, and more importantly, B, encourage, I think this is the more important point, encourage management to realise that they are engaging in the soft bigotry of low expectations by not treating this guy like everyone else. Oh, look, simply answer, I don't know, because the fear does run deep and it's quite genuine of being branded a racist for doing something. So, you know, talk with the person, say, look, um, let's let's arrive at a contract, mutually agreed upon contract about what you should be delivering and what we should be delivering. And, you know, if us as your bosses, management team aren't living up to that, please feel free to bring it to our attention and vice versa. If we feel you're not uh, living up to it, do we have your permission bring that to your attention that's the first thing that comes to mind but i do understand that you know sometimes um a person may think this isn't worth it because i don't want to be called racist and you know i've heard these stories before where someone has just shut their mouth because uh, i didn't want to be branded racist or they have opened their mouth and they paid dearly for it mm. well social media sort of looms large as this specter over creative industries like you know, film, TV, theatre, those sorts of things. Like, there's just such such fear about being called out on social media, and then somehow your show's cancelled, or no one watches it, or it gets boycotted, or something like that. Uh, it it I think in the creative industries, it's a bit more of a problem than maybe maybe other industries. Um, but have have you experienced this at all, sort of outside of uh, the creative industries at all? Yeah. Um, well, I was just going to say too, it's not even it doesn't even have to be being called out, it can just be an accusation. And so the example I'm thinking of was a researcher was, and I'll try and keep this all anonymous, um, she was a researcher for an organisation which I respect and, and still do, they do good work, just made this uh, innocent, nice comment. And I'm not going to say the comment because it'll, it'll identify the person, but it was it was just an observation. And there was, there was definitely nothing wrong about it. It was just a, a comment about Indigenous culture wasn't in any way negative or derogatory, but someone said, said, and this was on Twitter, someone said, you're starting to sound racist. Oh. And that person's employer you know, in this organisation, this organisation which I think do a good job that I, I use, called her and reprimanded her, and there was a series of meetings, um, and she was very upset simply because someone just said, you're beginning to sound well, you're sounding a bit racist. And, you know, if that person hadn't said it, the event would have gone unnoticed. And, you know, it's the comment was as harmless as something like um, the Indigenous culture in the West part of the continent's, continent's a little bit different to the culture in the East. You know, it was just a, a, an observation like that. Mm. Nothing negative. You know, it was, a, it was as harmless as that. And so this person was very upset and they came to me and they said, look, I'm glad you've written what you've written because I'm, I'm able to use this. Uh, at the end of the day, they, they didn't sort of win or win or receive an apology. But that's that's what I was, I was thinking of. But Anthony, it, it, I think your, your essential message 
of connection and that we've all got more in common than we don't. And and I think ultimately, if we take that to its logical uh, conclusion of love, of, of, of this, I think that is the main takeaway from a lot of what you're saying here. However, in these instances, before we can, maybe we can keep that in our heart, but in these moments, don't you think we should, unfortunately, don't you think we should have to plant our feet and come hard at people who try and, you know, destroy you with these smears like that 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 seems so unfair i feel like those accusations should be should be met really hard and 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 then we can we can all have a hug after that but no one gets to just walk up to you and destroy your life like in a drive-by like twitter twitter bomb and get away with it surely i agree and it uh to do this it's going to take people with backbone at all levels in society you know starting at the pm and then all the way down, where you know, if a, if some nonsense is spewed out or silly accusation, uh, we need people with backbone to say nonsense. Get back to work. Or if you make another claim like that, you you will be dismissed. God, I want that to happen so bad. Can, <laughs> Anthony, can you can you um, run for PM? <laughs> He's got many many things to juggle. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, uh, we want to get a little bit personal here uh, now, Anthony. Can you tell us a little bit about your father, Colin? Uh, he was a de- decorated police officer. Is that is that correct? Yeah, sure. Uh, in, first Aboriginal police officer in the country, uh, the least of his claims. It was never something that he made a big deal of. It was only later in his career when it become, um, you know, people were more enlightened about diversity in the workplace and certainly the idea of diversity in the workplace is a good thing but it got taken too far as you know um so you know he was happy to acknowledge his ancestry in that in the latter part of his career and he was recently the senior australian queenslander of the year um and the, the you know the lady who won the senior australian of the year she certainly deserved deserves it but we we're proud of dad for getting the queensland award and his life as a police officer and so he you know he faced racism or you know disapproval before i was born um so in, in 65 when he joined the police force so he knows what real racism is um but just uh, i think he won people over very quickly because they just saw well, one he's not someone you'd want to mess with but also he did his job well um and that's he so he went on to achieve great things you know dealing with corruption exposing corruption and that sort of thing and that's what he was really well known for um and you know just one quick thing with that, with all the corruption that was happening at the time, what the public don't know is that when dad come home from work, having dealt, dealt with, you know, the most serious things, you know, when you've got corruption in the police force, when dad come home, he was as cool as a cucumber. He come home and he was just able to be the family man because for him it was family first. And so we had no idea any of this was going on. But you can read about it elsewhere. And he was you know, just a, a very, very good policeman because he didn't see colour, black and white. He just wanted to serve the people of Queensland. He wanted to serve Queensland. It's not Aboriginal, uh, just people of Queensland. That's who, who he wanted to serve. So he saw oneness. And so, you know, obviously a good role model. For sure, yeah. Well, we're a little bit conscious of time now here, Anthony. We've got a couple, couple of questions to go. But uh, what would you say to a non-Aboriginal person listening right now who is afraid to speak up about Indigenous issues? Well, okay, first of all, be assured that it, it is your right to speak up. Having said that, you do have to use discretion sometimes. And I gave, I answered this question at a presentation I gave recently where I gave them a Bible verse where it says we need to be as gentle as doves but as wise as serpents. So 
knowing you have the right, but also just using a bit of discretion. Like I said, sometimes I'll, I'll shut up. It's just not worth it. So have that assurance and that should give you confidence to know when and when not to talk. And when you do talk, just express it as, you know, in my opinion, um, just say, look, from where I see it, um, express your opinion that way. So you picking your battles would be... Picking your battles, yeah. yeah. Just having the confidence that you, you know, you are in the right position, um, even if sometimes it may not be appropriate to um, talk about it. And, you know, try and give counterexamples too. If they say the past is holding Aboriginal people back, say, well, that's... Funny, I see many, many successful Aboriginal people who are doing well. How come? So you're not making a, a statement. You're kind of asking a question. Mm. How are they doing so well? I'm just curious. How come they dodge the uh, inter, you know transgenerational trauma bullet? Great. Well, a final question that we do like to to ask uh, all of our guests. Uh, we like to know what they're reading. So would you be able to tell us what you're reading right now? Uh, I'm reading the book by uh, Ed Saad, is it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Parasitic Mind. Yeah, I've got it. The Parasitic Mind, which I've got on the floor over there. Um, that's the main one that I'm nice. reading. He's, he's a funny guy. He does a lot of like social media little clips and stuff. Yeah, I like his work. I, I've just read, a, just uh, just started reading a book uh, on Kindle uh, by my mentor, actually, Bill Harker. It's called One Degree of Freedom. And it's just a very good uh, psychology book on, on human life. Uh, one degree of freedom so that's very interesting i'm, I'm writing that down <laughs> excellent so uh just final question Wh where can people find you are you online uh have you got a twitter account how can people read your work as well i'm on twitter but my web page www.anthonydillon.com.au and i got my contact details on there you can email me you can phone me you can read my stuff so pe people know where to send the hate mail then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Thanks so much, Anthony, for being so generous and, and sort of leading us uh, carefully through this this uh, very serious minefield. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been great chatting with you too. Thank you.